Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Welcome to this episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Today, we are going to talk about developer and all aspects of what that might mean. So what that means, developer. We're talking with Bill Pearson, who I got to know back when I worked in the Internet of Things group. He is a vice president in the Internet of Things group at Intel, and he specifically focuses on developer engagements. So he's got background software, hardware, reference designs, tools, pretty much everything there is, and a really fascinating person. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Camille. Glad to be here. It's good to have you here. So let's start with uh, the classic intro for what that means, which is, can you please give a shot at defining developer? <laughs> yeah, I think the simplest uh, definition is, you know, someone who develops something. And uh, there's lots of ways of doing that. A lot of times when I hear developers, I think software developers, people building applications uh, that are, you know, fun and interesting. They can be consumer, they can be business, they can be front end or back end. But really, developers are so much more than just the software uh, developers. You know, we've got hardware developers who are building systems and, and hardware pieces, hardware devices that we all use, like our phones, but also the big industrial manufacturing devices that are used to build cars and tractors and, and things like that. And increasingly, you know, developer is a diverse group with things like DevOps becoming such a key part of, you know, so not just the application, but how all the pieces of software come together to create solutions. Okay, that's that was like very succinct for a term that I thought might actually not fit into any kind of a paragraph for a definition. <laughs> um, so when people become developers, they have to decide, you know, A, am I software or hardware, or maybe that's blending a little bit more now. Am I developing for OS device, Android device? Like, am I going to develop an IoT you know, or is it by vertical? I'm going to do applications for, you know, Internet of Things, or I'm going to do applications in the financial sector or consumer. Like, how do they even begin to figure out where they fit in the giant world? Yeah, I think this is like an in-way problem where there is no sort of right answer uh, or even common answer. But, you know, most developers get trained uh, through school or on their own through some form of maybe programming or maybe hardware design. So I think you could draw a line between, say, hardware developers and, and software developers. Not always clean, not always that distinct, but but in general, there, there are some different disciplines there. What gets interesting for me is when you start talking about software developers, oftentimes it's the technology that gets interesting for the developer. And that technology interest changes over time. And so what, what might happen is, you know, I had back in the day people looking at C++ development, and that was the thing. And so they become experts there. But the very best developers keep learning every day. And so now those same developers might be doing Python, and they're building AI applications. And so they have evolved their thinking, they've evolved their toolbox of techniques and programming languages and APIs and models that they would work on. 
you know, so one choice is the technology piece. What, what am I interested in? What am I learning these days? What skill is going to give me a job in the industry? Um, and then how to apply it, I think is what you were alluding to there with, you know, am I going to apply that to consumer tech? Cause it gets me really excited to see, you know, how a bunch of consumers using my applications or, you know, am I going to take some specialized route down a, a vertical? The folks who are dealing with manufacturing, as an example, get to work in factories with big devices and robots that are moving around. And, and that's very exciting to be in that industry. Uh, it's, it's like no other. And, you know, while it's not a, a million applications on somebody's phone, it is a, a whole great world of robotic arms and building real things that real people, you know, use every day. And so there's, there's all of this that comes together for a developer, um, including where they work. Sometimes, you know, they might work as a, a developer for hire who's uh, taking a contract to build something for someone else. Sometimes they're at a startup inventing their own products and ideas uh, that they then get to go sell to the world. So I think as we look at developers, it's this complex cube of uh, the skill set in the technology that they're using to, to, to build their applications or build their technology. Uh, then you couple that with the, the type of industry that they might be in, the type of vertical market that they might want to sell to, and then how or where they work and, uh, you know, get their money or their reward for doing that work. So one of the things in the security space that we always think about is training developers to break something because it doesn't necessarily come naturally, right? Developers are building something. They're trying to make it work. They're looking at a specific use case and making sure the functionality is accurate, whereas breaking something is a different mindset. So how are those two things kind of coming together as security becomes more important? Yeah, there's a, a set of practices, I'll call them, around security that are starting to become more more common. You know, as we think about our, our own coding practices, a lot of times we'll run code reviews to take a look at what we've built and have other people comment on it and provide feedback. And, and so there's a whole, you know, security development lifecycle uh, around that where, you know, we take a look at threat modeling, what could break uh, here, and then do security validation, uh, penetration testing. We're deliberately try and break things and see if we can you know, get into these uh, environments that we're creating. And I think you know that's starting to become more commonplace uh, than it used to be, certainly, as, as developers are thinking more about security and realizing that they need to at least consider it as part of the, the applications that they're developing. I'll share one anecdote that I, I heard recently that I thought was fascinating. And that's, you know, a lot of developers are building for the cloud these days and thinking about, hey, maybe that cloud environment, the security is someone else's responsibility. Um, but some data from the NSA that I saw said that, uh, you know, misconfigured cloud resources uh, is one of the most prevalent cloud vulnerabilities that, that are out there. And that comes from maybe me uh, misconfiguring the, the cloud resources that I have. So it's this idea of shared security as well, where not only do I need to expect that the providers of the tools and the resources that I'm using think about security, but that I'm thinking about security in, in my day-to-day -day activities, including trying to break things and trying to you know penetrate my own systems and see if uh, I am as robust as I, I think I should be. Do you think that developers are in the space of making trade-offs right now between, say, user experience and security? Or have we got to the point where it's not an either-or? You can have both? You certainly are always making trade-offs as a developer. It's sort of part of the, the, the life. One example that I can think of that you know recently we've had to go through in trading off Security versus experience is sort of how and when to implement simple things. So if you think about a login requirement, 
we have a system that has a, a login. We require developers to go and access that. Where, where do you put the login? Do you want to put it at the beginning? You can't see anything at all in here until you create an account, register, and log in. Now you can see everything. Uh, or do you want to move it? And how far in do you move it? So maybe I can see a catalog of things, uh, but can I download any of those things? No, we, you have to you know, log in to be able to download something. And so those type of trade-offs, we actually find that they do trade off security versus experience. How easy do we make it to access the things we provide? Um, but it also helps us answer, let's say, insightful or thoughtful questions like, what are we really trying to protect? Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the best way to protect that? You know, do I need a login? And if I do, do it, does it need to be here or can it be somewhere else? Then that's a fairly simple example. There are certainly more complex examples. But I do think that developers every day are trading off, you know, where and how and, and um, how to approach security versus how to make an experience that their customers are going to want to use. And do you think, are developers actually, for the most part, thinking about security these days? Or is that still something that really only people in certain fields are paying attention to? Well, the the news headlines make it much easier to think about security now. So if I'm thinking about, at least my view of developers is not all of them are thinking about security, but I think they all should be. Um, if you can imagine your application, your work, uh, you know, being a, a New York Times headline is probably a good reason enough to, to think about security. But, uh, you know, you can be a good judge of developers can be their own judge of what uh, what I'm building and what's the cost of that security breach that might happen. You know, we were talking before the show here about someone who has a lot of public information about themselves. They may not be willing to put in the effort to protect it because it's probably out there anyway, whereas I might be much more private about you know some of that information for myself. And so I'm going to want a different level of security than, you know, the next uh, person. I think that's true for, for developers, which is why you see some people thinking about security more than, than others. One thing, though, that I know is really important is to make sure that whatever stance you take on security as a developer, that it's thought about from the beginning. You know, one of the tools that my team has been working on is this thing we call DevCloud. And it's a simple way of taking hardware that's diverse and hard to get your hands on and maybe expensive and just putting it all in one place where we can make it available to a bunch of developers out in the world. And as we started doing this, you know, we had to ask ourselves a lot of security questions. And what we found is in the areas that we asked the questions up front, we could do a great job of building those solutions, testing those solutions, getting other people's advice on those solutions and reworking them as needed. And on the areas where we waited until the very last moment to start thinking about security, uh, it was much more challenging to do the same, right? We, we had to hurry to catch up or we had to defeature things to, you know, to maintain the security that we needed to maintain. You're in charge of engaging with developers at a big company. So I'm wondering, you know, what kinds of things are best practice, state of the art, doesn't necessarily need to be Intel. Are people doing to engage with developers? I would think we just saw a tremendous boost in desire for development in general over the last couple of years. What are some of the newer things that companies are doing, big or small, to to try to get the pull there? A few things. One of them is using best known practices. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of people who have done this before that are willing to share uh, their implementations. And whether that's security consultants, uh, one of the things that that we did as an example is once we thought we had 
a product secure, we went and hired someone to come and try and break it, to try and give us advice and say, did we really apply all the industry best known methods? And there's plenty of opportunities for developers to, to do that. And we see, again, just by the fact that there are consultants that do this, uh, that, you know, there's people who are willing to share their expertise and knowledge, and there's more and more demand uh, for that in the, in the industry. Other things that we're, we're seeing happening is, you know, people really being willing to publish and talk about what are the BKMs that I could take and, and implement on my own. So, you know, a simple example that you might think about is, uh, hey, I'm going to grant root access to devices. Uh, and if you're trying to implement secure practices, you won't do that, right? So these are common sense, but these are also things that, you know, again, are, are um, when you put them together, you've got a, a list of industry best practices that are easy to go and find and uh, adopt. We also see, you know, companies who are finding different ways of identifying the root of trust for for their um, devices, their software. You know, you saw Microsoft, for example, just say, hey, every uh, device that runs Windows 11 needs to have this uh, uh, trusted platform module, this TPM. And so they're getting more serious about security there and making sure that the root of trust on their Windows platform is uh, more robust than it has been in, in the past. Um, so you see, you know, people paying more attention to how do I uh, get that hardware or software root of trust, but that really powerful root of trust, and then use that as a, a basis for building out the rest of their security infrastructure. And some of that infrastructure is going to include things like you know, secure enclaves to go and hide uh, information that you want to protect in a more rigorous fashion, using encryption, both while things are at rest, as well as, you know, when they're in motion. So when I'm, when I'm moving data from one place to another. Um, so different types of encryption that can be used across different devices. But the, the net net kind of is that people are implementing uh, more robust encryption rather than keeping passwords and models and algorithms out in the, the open like they may have done in the past. And are developers like looking for companies that are supplying them with certain kinds of experiences or certain kinds of APIs? Like, you know, how do you kind of maintain relations with developers? When we talk to developers in general, there, there's a couple of traits that I see. One is, you know, a lot of times they're just focused on trying to get a job done. And so when they have that job, uh, you know, I want to build a model that will do defect detection of this weld. And uh, it's fairly unique. And I'm looking for porosity in a, in a weld so that I can check it with a camera versus a human. That's a tough job. So how do you help them create that model? How do you help them protect that model? Um, how do you provide the performance so that they can check that model in real time as the manufacturing line moves through its cycles? All of that goes into just helping a developer get the job done. And um, the questions you know, that they ask, and we try and anticipate the, the, the questions as well as the answers. Sometimes we're good at it, sometimes not. But the, the questions that they ask range you know, from, uh, hey, how do I improve the performance of this particular model to how do I reduce the memory footprint of, of this model? Uh, so lots of different types of questions. Uh, sometimes it's even what's the best hardware for me, me to use? Depending on what they're what they're trying to do, the answer is going to vary right all over the, the map. So, helping the developer get their job done is the first and I think most important uh, thing. 
And then beyond that, there's that'll, that'll take you in a million different uh, directions mm-hmm. because the providers of solutions, you know, whether we're talking about VS Code or you're talking about some particular AI application, the providers of tools that developers use are the ones who are going to make it easy for them to take the tool and apply it to the job that they're trying to get done. Uh, and most often, you know, that job's going to change day to day. So we're looking at a fairly robust uh, tool that does a lot but at the same time fits into the developer's uh, workflow and their view of how the the world works. I feel like in the last few years, there's been just increasing number of attacks and kind of publicity around attacks on hardware and on critical infrastructure, which is can be hardware. How are you securing hardware or helping overall security through uh, maybe a software developer who's interested in security but has to kind of rely on the hardware to some degree? Is that up to the developer to make sure they understand those ties into the hardware or are hardware providers working on that? Yeah, I mean, all of the above is true. One of the things we started building are what we call reference implementations. And there, there are solutions that are fully open and fully baked. Uh, so we can say, hey, let's look at this um, you know, point of sale fraud detection solution. And we'll show how we built it, what hardware is used, what software is used, so the full bill materials. And then we'll provide instructions and code for how to build it and give the code to the developer so they can go build it themselves as well. And then, you know, we're increasingly taking those reference implementations and then helping the developers be able to run those in the cloud, in dev cloud that we, we call it, right? So if the case their, their hardware is a small edge device, they can still take that reference implementation and go run it there. And the, the notion is that by showing them how to build that solution, we just help get their mind around what types of hardware I need, what types of software, how I implement security, how I might implement AI, how those two work together. And with that orientation, they can then get a, a, a solid example of how to implement it. And from there, they can start saying, okay, for my application, I'm going to take these things that are similar and I'm going to add it with these things that are different and, and unique. Um, but they've got a great foundation to build on. Are those offered basically by vertical? Is it like I'm operating in the Internet of Things industrial manufacturing space, so I'm going to grab a reference design for that? Or is it more of a horizontal kind of a reference design? Yeah, we've implemented them more in a um, a vertical-specific use case fashion. And um, the reason we've done that is some of the feedback that we've gotten from developers. So one of the things I love about this job is the the ability to just learn, right? I constantly have to uh, try something, see how it works, listen to the feedback from the developers that are using it, uh, adapt it, and change. Uh, So this great learning loop that we're going through. And um, what we found is that when we can help provide a developer with a specific solution to a specific problem, it resonates more with them. Uh, In fact... I'll share, we ran some tests on some of these early reference implementations, and we found that the developers could get through the mechanics of the solution, how to code it, how to implement it. But the question they came back with is, why am I doing this? Uh, and so when we could apply it to a particular problem that they were trying to solve, coming back to weld porosity detection or point of sale fraud detection, then it resonated. They said, oh, now I understand, right? That's why I'm, I'm using this model. That's why I have this application. That's why you, you asked me to use this hardware. So we've created a variety of these based on common use cases that we see happening in the industry. And every day we wake up trying to say, okay, what's that next use case that a developer would be interested in? And how do we sort of build it, test it so that it gets dialed in to something that's going to be useful for those developers? 
You've worked with developers for a long time, right? A long time. Yes. Have you noticed any kind of changes? Uh, I have. Um, One of the changes that I'm seeing is that um, developers are uh, much more interested in AI these days. So start with that one. You know, in the past, what I'd seen is there's a, a lot of developers who are kind of in their niche technology area. And you might say, oh, I'm a C++ developer, as we talked about before, or maybe I'm going to, you know, do something in Rust or Python or Go. Today, what I noticed is that regardless of the use case, regardless of the industry, regardless of the technology, that AI seems to be showing up uh, for developers. You know, we're seeing it in the in the PC, where developers are trying to say, oh, can I use AI to reduce background noise in uh, telephone calls? You know, we see it in the the data center as we're training these large models uh, to recognize things. And you you certainly see it at the edge where a lot of the inferencing use cases are are running, whether it's a a car trying to detect lanes on a road or whether it's a, you know, defect detection that I've been talking about where I'm I'm building something and I want to see if that weld is, is done correctly. And that's changed a lot of thinking uh, because, you know, now with these AI implementations, you have algorithms and these algorithms are the secret sauce. So they need to be protected, right? My models need to be secure. And that brings us, you know, around to security where I think, you know, security has been fragmented in the past. Some developers don't care at all about it and and some care a lot uh, about it. Um, but when we start seeing AI come into place, there's a much higher, at least recognition of the need to secure the, the application so that that AI is able to stay protected, stay secure, stay implemented in the way that the developer uh, intended. Well, why is that? I mean, why is AI such a catalyst? I, I'm guessing it's because we're gathering private information in order to create models or, you know, IP information that we don't want out anywhere else. Why is that such the driver? Yeah, I think that data is is one absolutely. You know, there's when you think about why can we do AI now that we we couldn't, and there's many reasons, but one of them is this this large data sets that are starting to exist. And uh, you think about all the rules for what to do with data. There, one, one thing is just being careful about. Hey, how do I protect uh, you know PII, so personal data? How do I protect sensitive data, whether it's personal or not, but sensitive to my business? Um, how do I make sure that I'm you know only letting people who have a need to access that data access it? Um, all these type of requirements and more uh, require security. So the developer needs to to think about um, it there. The second thing is that. From a, um, a model or algorithm standpoint, once I use that data to go train a model, now I need to secure that model because mm-hmm. oftentimes that's my IP, my proprietary information. So it's not just data that I want to protect, but it's how I've used that data to create this AI algorithm uh, that I'm going to go use to drive my business. Okay, so that's kind of all aspects. Are, are Is it the same developer working on the model as the inference as on actually just even classifying the like data labeling, or are those all different people? Yeah, it depends on the business and the the model. You know, if it's a small team, it's going to be all the same people. But uh, some of the interesting things we found is, um, you know, we did some research a couple of years ago on how does what do these teams look like? Uh, these AI teams and people who are taking data sets and training data sets, training models, and then people who are going and building applications of those to, to do inference and such. In the past, they'd largely been separate entities where you have, you know, one person who's, who's working with the data and they're sort of throwing it over to the wall to these other teams. And 
Uh, today, we're seeing much more integrated teams, while the people may still be specialized in the work that they do, but they're part of an integrated team that's working on this particular application. And so that's a, a little bit of change in terms of how the, the folks are organized. Whenever we approach a, a problem like this, one of the things that I found really helpful is this idea of identifying the, the actors and sort of their journey through the development process. And so you, you were talking about, you know, data labeling, for example, and uh, who's going to do that? How does it work? What tools do they use? What's the workflow like for somebody who's, who's going to go in and uh, label data? And then once I've labeled that data, cleaned it up, and I want to go start training the, the model, what does that function look like? And then the question, who's doing it? And so if it's going to be the same person, how do you make sure the continuity of the tool chain is there? And you know, so they can easily move from one task to the other along that journey. If it's a different person, how do we make sure that the, the data is easily transposed from the first person to the, the next one in, in line there as they go through their tool chain? And I suppose kept private or secure or confidential the whole way through. Yes. Not everybody's in the same location, especially now. So you're digitally transferring that information from person to person, I guess, as you collaborate. Yeah, either transferring that information from person to person or from tool to tool if, if it's kept in the same same repository, right? Giving access to that data at the right time to those various people around the globe, as you point out. Has a developer or like any kind of a, a competition or event that you were at ever done something that you've put out or your team has put out expecting one thing, kind of paving the path and, and for the direction that developers are going to take it and got back something completely different? We used to do um, hackathons with developers where we would put new technology in front of them and say, hey, go figure something out uh, with this technology. And I'm, I'm always surprised at what developers do. So the, the answer to the question was, well, yeah, all the time. Okay. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's, uh, you know, seeing how creative they can be with a piece of technology. You know, one thing that strikes me, there was a, a gentleman who won a, a contest um, in, the, in the past year or so, and uh, he was doing clean water detection, which was kind of cool, right? And it was just his way of saying, hey, look, I want to take AI and apply it in a way that's meaningful to the world. And that was, you know, perhaps shouldn't have been surprising. We use it for detecting all kinds of things. Clean water it makes sense. At the same time, in some of these uh, Internet of Things competitions that we've done, you know, have had developers build smart trash cans. I'm like, okay, what, what's that for? Why? And, uh, you know, use it for for all kinds of other creative endeavors. Um, but to me, that's sort of the nature of developers is um, their creativity, their innovation, and their willingness to try new things and see what sticks. So you always end up then with some technology that you've built, and then the developers are applying it in new and creative ways to their own applications. And it's, to me, the one of the most fascinating and satisfying things uh, about you know, being in this world with developers. So, okay, so at the risk of uh, having to speculate about things, or I wanted to ask you about ethical AI. We're talking about AI. We're talking about security in this, but also ethics, which kind of maps over with security and privacy. Are you ever surprised at what comes up in that space? Yeah, I mean, this is a space that has been fascinating because... There's all kinds of concerns around uh, ethics and AI that, you know, maybe you don't think of at, at first blush. And so, you know, if you look at it as an example of, hey, I'm going to identify a face in a picture, there's a lot of advantages and goodness that can come from that. And there's also a lot of risks. Uh, and so, you know, you look at what harm can come from AI and what we're doing there. And uh, what we've had to do is build a set of principles around what does it mean 
to be ethical in AI? And how are we going to make sure that we're not building things that are going to be a detriment to society or that the things that we're building are going to be used in the way that they're intended? You know, that's a, a complicated task uh, sometimes, but it's also, you know, something that we feel is important and worth doing. Uh, so we've tried to build it into our education of ourselves. We built it into the license agreements as we're licensing technology, you know, to developers. But I think more importantly is we're trying to build education of folks on what does it mean to really drive ethical AI and how do we do that together in a way that we're going to like the result at the end of the day when this stuff gets out there into the real world. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I will just let people know in case they're interested in hearing more about it, that I interviewed Chloe Audio specifically on responsible AI, um, which of course could also be called trustworthy AI or a variety of different terms, as well as Ria Cherivu, who's the chief ethics architect. I interviewed her on deep learning, but we went into conversations on AI ethics as well. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, you bet. Very cool. Is there any other thing that I should be asking you about to give people a feeling for who are developers and how do I work with them? You know, I I, I don't think there is anything else. Um, the only thing that I might offer as advice, though, for people who are who are looking uh, to understand more about developers is uh, there's lots of places you can go and hang out with developers. Stack Overflow is the first one that comes to mind. Look at some of the questions that get asked, the type of answers that are being provided, the way the community comes together uh, and works with each other to solve some of these common challenges, problems, things that developers are, are trying to work on. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Bill, for your time. I really appreciate it. Bill Pearson is Vice President of Internet of Things Group at Intel. Thanks, Camille. Glad to be here. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.